0: But today it's Psalm 110. I'd like you to stand and we wanna, I want to have us read this together as we've been doing on several of these. And I'm going to read the odd numbered verses. I'm reading from the New King James Version. If you don't have that version, the e- uh, even numbered verses will be on the screen and I want you guys to read together the even numbered verses. So let's begin Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord is at your right hand, and he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall shall drink of the brook by the wayside, and therefore he shall lift up the head. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have been singing today, all hail King Jesus. Lord, we have acknowledged you as our king here in this place. And as we look at this psalm that describes for us your kingly, but also your priestly ministry, I pray that our hearts would be enlightened and encouraged today as we consider who you are, and the work that you desire to play in and through our lives. And so we give you this time today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Just out of curiosity, how many of you here have come from a Catholic background? Okay, that does not surprise me. Bunch of hands all over the room. I didn't come from uh, out of the Catholic church, but but my dad did. And my dad was actually um, offended by a uh, Catholic priest who, what happened was my dad was going to this one, he lived in Pittsburgh at that time, and he was going to this one particular Catholic church and um, he ended up switching to a different Catholic church because they had an earlier mass that worked out better into my dad's schedule. And so he started going to this other Catholic church and he got a call from the priest of his previous Catholic church that basically told him that if he if he quit tithing to his previous Catholic church, that they were going to remove his membership. And that really, really set him off. It turned him against the church. It turned him against God for a number of years. And so knowing that that was my dad's background, I really didn't have a very good view of priests And on top of that, I didn't really get the outfits, you know, the black polyester pants and shirt with the little, you know, uh, white collar or the big fancy robes. I didn't get any of that. And and so I just wasn't interested in all that liturgy and, and that type of thing. And, you know, I came to the Lord in 1973 and shortly thereafter started going to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I remember walking into the sanctuary and seeing Pastor Chuck up on the stage in a Hawaiian shirt. And I thought, this is my kind of place, you know? (laughs) And I loved it. I loved what you know God was doing. I loved how the word was being taught and the music was great and there was young people just you know all over the place. And, and it was the place I wanted to be. It was the place I wanted to bring my friends. And, and it was really, really exciting. But something happened a couple years or so later when I was reading through the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is our high priest. And I literally thought to myself, because I was kind of immature, I thought, I don't want a priest. I had a bad, you know, had a bad picture in my mind about what you know, the priesthood was all about. I, I don't want a priest. A savior, yes. A shepherd, great. A friend, awesome. Lord, definitely, but not a priest. And maybe when you hear the phrase, Jesus is our high priest, maybe it kind of doesn't sit very well with you for maybe something, you know, your background as relates to, you know, that sort of thing. But the priestly ministry of Jesus is really, really important for us to understand. And it's very significant and very, very special. And the, high, the priestly ministry in Israel, the high priest was a crucial part of their, their whole um, system. And the high priest pointed to a superior priest who was going to come, and that being Jesus. And so today we're going to consider the high priestly ministry of Jesus as we look here at Psalm Psalm 110. And this is our final study in our Summer in the Psalms series, volume two. And it's interesting, this is a great psalm, I think, for us to end on because Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and verse one is the most quoted verse. Psalm 110 is quoted directly or alluded to in the New Testament 27 times. And here's the question, why would Psalm 110 have been so important to the early church and the New Testament writers? And the answer is this, it's because it projects or portrays Jesus um, as the Messiah. It's what we would call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points to Jesus as the Messiah. And it's used that way in several places in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 110 is quoted in Matthew chapter 22 to confound the religious leaders. You see, the religious leaders in Israel denied, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were against him. They were always coming against him. And so one day Jesus asked them a very pointed question. I'll read it to you. It'll will be on the screen, though. Matthew 22, verse 41. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And it says, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day forward did anyone dare question him any more. They were confounded by the question. If David calls him his Lord, how can he be his son. We see this passage used again in Acts chapter 2. This time it's the day of Pentecost. It's the day that Peter is preaching to a crowd of people that have gathered around. And this time it's used to convict the hearts of those. Peter in that, that sermon is, is preaching about Jesus and who he was. We'll pick it up in verse 32. Again, it'll be on the screen. He, he says, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, and here's Psalm 110 again, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God made this Jesus whom you crucified. Ouch. Both Lord and Christ. And this was the response. Here we see the conviction. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? As they heard this, as he's quoting there from Psalm 110, they were convicted and they realized we crucified the Messiah. And so they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter tells them how they need to repent and turn and give their hearts to Jesus. And we're told in Acts chapter two, that there were 3000 people that came to Christ in that moment so psalm 110 was used to confound the religious leaders convict a group of people it was also used to confirm the messiahship of jesus in hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 the author there in hebrews it was making a point how christ was far superior than the angels and to really clinch his argument he points to psalm 110 He says, to which of the angels, said he at any time, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So this is a messianic psalm that points to Jesus as the Messiah and the King of Israel. And as we unpack this today, there's four things I want you to see. We want to first of all talk about the prominence of the King in verse 1. The power of the king in verse 2, as well as in verses 5 through 7. Then we'll talk for a few minutes about the people of the king there in verse 3. And we're going to wrap it up by talking about the priesthood of the king there in verse 4. And that's going to take us into our time of communion today. So we start with the prominence of the king in verse 1. He said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is such a fascinating passage because in it, David sees a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Notice it says, The Lord capital L-O-R-D, that word Lord is the word Jehovah, which is one of the primary names of God the Father in the Old Testament. So he says, the Lord said to my Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that word Lord is the word Adonai, and it's a word that's used to refer to God the Son. So here's what he's saying. The Lord Jehovah, God, the father says to the Lord Adonai, God, the son sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. Here's what we need to understand. The right hand was a place of prominence. It was a place of honor. It was more than just a place of honor. It was literally, it signified that you were sharing in the rule of the king. It signified participation in the, in the royal dignity and the power of the king. In fact, the Paul the Apostle, he speaks of this prominence that Jesus ascended to after his resurrection there in Philippians chapter 2 when he said this, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul sees Jesus exalted, and notice how he puts it, to the highest place. The highest place you could go. Where? Right there at the right hand of the Father. He's in that place of prominence there in heaven. Now, what's interesting, the Bible tells us that when Jesus was here on planet Earth, that he was despised and rejected, that he was harassed, And hated by many that eventually he was unjustly arrested and tried and then cruelly executed. But God the Father reversed all of that for God raised him up from the dead and received him into heaven. And as Jesus get there, the Father says, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He puts him in that place of prominence. And today, our Lord Jesus, that's where he's at. Sitting there at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things in heaven and on earth. But here's what's interesting. The common view of so many people have of Jesus is not that of him ruling. Many people, people you know, they see Jesus as the baby in the manger, Christmas time. That's when they give Jesus you know, some, some attention. He's the, the baby in the manger, even though they, they fail to realize that that's majesty in the manger because he's the king that stepped off the throne to step into our world so that he could come and pay the price for our sins. Others see Jesus as the Savior on the cross. That's the picture they have of Him. He's my Savior. He died for me, but they don't acknowledge Him as their King. And as equally important as the manger, the the majesty in the manger or the Savior on the cross are, both of those are past tense pictures. The present tense is Jesus in heaven at the right hand of the Father in that place of prominence. And the Bible says that one day he is going to come again and set up his kingdom here on earth that will have no end. So we see, first of all, the prominence of the king. Now, secondly, we want to note the power of the king. Notice verse 2. He says, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. The word rod used here is the word scepter. It's the staff that the king would hold. It spoke of his power. It spoke of his strength. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, we read this, that at the second coming of Christ, it says that Jesus is going to rule, he's going to overcome the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. And iron speaks of his unbending strength. Now here's what's interesting. Right now, we are living in this age of grace. Grace is undeserved grace favor we deserve god's judgment but what does he give us he gives us forgiveness he gives salvation we are living in this day and age of grace and sometimes i think you and i who are believers and followers of jesus when we see the wickedness going on in our world when we see all the craziness happening we we wonder lord how much longer how much longer are you going to wait before you come and set up your kingdom and, and make things right? And we, sometimes we can grow impatient, right? Well, Peter tells us why God is waiting. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter wrote, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. Peter says, this is why the Lord is waiting. This is why he's being patient is because he's, he's patient and he doesn't want anyone to perish. So he's waiting for more people to come to their senses and to turn from their sins and to give their hearts to him. And that's what he's longing for and waiting for. And if you haven't opened up your heart to Jesus yet, I want to encourage you, do so today before our service is over. That you would say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. But here's the thing. Here's why this is important. There is a day coming when the age of grace will be over. And the Bible says that the Lord is going to pour out His wrath on a world that has rejected Him. Verses 5-7 through seven are, is describing this. It speaks of His power being manifested at His coming and His wrath being poured out. Notice verse 5. It says, the Lord is at your right hand and He shall execute kings in the day of wrath. And he shall judge among the nations, and he shall fill the places with dead bodies, and he shall execute the heads of many countries. Now we read that and we think, man, that is heavy. That's a heavy thing to think that that's what's coming upon planet earth. In fact, there is an ominous picture of this in Revelation chapter 6 in verses 15 through 17. It describes something that's going to happen during the time of the tribulation time. Notice what it says. I'll read it to you. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the commanders, and the mighty men, and every slave, and every free man. So not just the important people, but but everybody, notice what it says, hid themselves in the caves, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from what? The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That is an ominous picture. People on the earth, great men, great leaders, but but common men as well, saying to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, crush us. Because that would be better to experience that than to experience the wrath of the Lamb. And we're also told that the Bible says that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. It is going to be the most horrific, intense time of judgment that our world has ever seen. And a lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people, they, they think to themselves, I, I don't understand this. Maybe you're sitting here today or you're watching online and you're thinking to yourself, as I'm talking about this, I thought God was loving. Why would he do that? Why would he treat the people like that, that he created in that type of way? I don't think I can believe in a God who would respond in that way to his creation. But here's what we need to understand. God has been patiently waiting for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Since the beginning of mankind, this all started, friends, with mankind rebelling against God. And man has been continuing to rebel against God ever since. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of man living in rebellion against God, rejecting God. Our world today is full of violence and full of immorality and full of injustice and full of oppression because man has refused to follow God. And all throughout these thousands and thousands of years, God has been sending messengers to mankind to say, hey, that's not what I have for you. That's not the best for you. You're only hurting yourselves. I love you. Would you just turn from your sin and turn to me? And, and mankind has ignored his messengers. And then he sent his son to come. And that his son would say, hey, this is the way of God. This is the way of my father. And he loves you. And this is what he has for you. And they not only ignored his son, they killed his son. Rejected his son. And God has been waiting patiently for mankind to turn to him. And I ask you this question, who does that? Who who acts in that way? Who shows that kind of patience? Not the man-made gods of Greek mythology. You study them. They don't don't react that way. You get out of line and boom, they're ready to pounce on you. And we don't do that either. I mean, we live in the day and age of cancel culture. You step out of line. You say the wrong thing. What happens, man? We're going to cancel you. We're going to cut you off. And that, by the way, is one of the signs that we are living in the last days that we're going to talk about on September 21st, on that Wednesday night at our Prophecy Update. We live in this age. So I want to encourage you, don't fault God for having a time limit on His grace and His mercy. And understand that when God brings forth judgment, it's always like a surgeon who is seeking to attack cancer. That he's going to cut the cancer out of the body in order to save the individual. That's how God's judgment works. He seeks to get rid of that which is the cancer after long periods of time of showing grace and mercy. But here's what we need to understand, folks. Every single one of us here, we know people. We have people in our lives, and our families, people that we work with that don't know Jesus, who have rejected Jesus. And what we're reading about there in Revelation, that is going to be their fate. If they don't give their lives to the Lord, and that should break our hearts. That should motivate us to pray for them intensely pray for them that should motivate us that whenever we have the opportunity that we let them know of of jesus who loves them and what he did for them so we have the prominence of the king the power of the king thirdly let's talk about the people of the king Those verse three He says, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. That last phrase he's describing there is that his kingdom, his rule is going to be refreshing. And those who are in his kingdom, they are just gonna be willingly, just volunteering, wanting to serve and be a part of what he is doing. And this is a beautiful picture of the nature of King Jesus. That to those who follow him, he rules not by force, but out of love. And his people serve him not out of force but in response to his love for them. That they're just responding to the fact that, man, he is so loving and I'm so thankful for what he's done in my life and how he saved me and how he changed me. I just want, it's like the the overflow, it's the outflow. I just want to serve him. The picture here, by using this term volunteers, is they're not serving begrudgingly, but they're serving Willfully, willingly. And this is one of the things, you guys get this. This is one of the things that I love about our church. We have a very large number of you here who volunteer to serve. And because we run everything through our planning center program now, we we actually have numbers that we can look at. And it's very, very encouraging. I'll give you just a a little bit of an example. So we have, and this is probably conservatively speaking, that we have probably about a 1,000 adults that call Calvary Vista their church home. Do you know that out of that 1,000 adults who would say Calvary Vista is my church home... 436 of you have in the last 18 months volunteered to serve in some type of ministry, in some type of an event here in the church. That's incredible. 436, that's 44% of you that are like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll help, I'll serve, I'll, I'll get involved. That's Statistically speaking, that's huge. In most churches, it's like 10 or 20% of the people that call that church their church home, that actually get involved in serving. And so I commend you guys for having that type of heart. And you guys also, you get the sense that you're serving willfully. I, I never meet people here who are begrudging. Oh, i got to teach Sunday children's ministry today. Pray for me, you know. No. <laughs> Oh, I got to serve in the parking lot and help people, you know, get their cars parked. And it's 100 degrees today out there. I mean, even those guys who are sweating out there today are like just excited. It's cool. On your way out, buy those guys a cold brew coffee and, you know, out back. Say, thank you so much for sweating out here today while I was in the nice air-conditioned sanctuary, you know. But I love that about you guys. That heart, that sense of like, yeah, I want to be involved. I'm thankful that you, you serve out of that response. And that's the nature of the kingdom. And it's only going to be magnified even more. It's coming to that place where we realize and understand what Jesus said is true. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's like, Lord, I, I want to be involved. Use me. So cool. The people. The people of the king. And then we come to number four, the priesthood of the king. And this is where we want to kind of really, really dive in here for a few minutes before we have communion. Verse four, he says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek was one of the most significant and mysterious characters in all of the Old Testament scriptures. I don't have time to go into all the detail about him, but I will say this. He is, at the very least, a picture of Jesus. But many Bible scholars believe that he is a Christophany, or some would call it a theophany. And what is that? That's a a, a picture or a time when Jesus appeared in a bodily form in the Old Testament prior to him coming to earth as a little baby. And this happens. This guy shows up in Genesis chapter 14 melchizedek and in genesis chapter 14 it's after this battle that abraham has and he has a victory over these enemy forces and as he's coming back he's met by this this priest in genesis chapter 14 we're told that melchizedek was the priest of the most high god that's the title that he's given and it says that that abraham paid tithes to him And and, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham pays tithes to him. But what's interesting about Melchizedek is he's also called the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. So Melchizedek has this very unique office as being priest and king. No one else in Israel's history had ever had both of those offices. What's also interesting about Melchizedek is he shows up on the scene in Genesis chapter 14, and that is way before the whole priestly system in Israel was set up in the book of Exodus under the reign of Moses. So he precedes all of that. And he is this kingly high priest. And Abraham meets him, and he's impressed by him, and there's just something special about him that he pays him these tithes. Well, we're told here in Psalm 110 that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We're told the same thing in Hebrews chapter 5, in Hebrews chapter 7. And Here's what I want to do for just a few minutes. I want to contrast the priestly ministry of Jesus, Melchizedek, this, this priestly, kingly, priestly uh, priesthood, with the priesthood of Aaron the Levites that were raised up in Israel. Aaron was the older brother of Moses, and he was the first high priest in Israel. And the rest of the priests came from his line, the tribe of Levi. And the priesthood of Aaron was marked by frailty. Because, you see, their priests only served for a short period of time. They would become a priest when they were 30, and they would retire when they were 50. So they only served for 20 years years the Aaronic priesthood was also in fact marked by failure because shortly after it was instituted we have the two sons of Aaron Nadab and Abihu that end up offering what's called strange fire and they end up being executed by God because they get drunk and they go into the tabernacle to offer sacrifices they're trying to do some holy work but they're drunk and trying to do it and God executed them and the, the Aaronic priesthood was marked by that type of failure even after that, because all the priests who came after those guys were flawed men, they were sinners. So it was marked by frailty, it was marked by, by failure, it was also marked by frustration because in the priests of Israel, their work never ended. I mean, every single day they'd go into the tabernacle and later the temple and they're offering up sacrifices for the people. And even after on the, that one day out of the year, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when they would offer, the high priest would actually go into the Holy of Holies. And the only time that anybody was able to go into the Holy of Holies was on that one day out of the whole year. And only the high priest. And he could only go in after he offered sacrifices for his own sins. And they would put a rope around his ankle and bells on his ankle. So just in case he went into the Holy of Holies with unconfessed sin and he was struck dead, they could pull him out. But he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer, a sacrifice would be offered and he'd take the blood of it into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it there on the mercy seat. And it served, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament served as a covering for the sins of the people of Israel. And their sin was covered, like putting a blanket over it, if you would, for a year. But after a year, they had to do it all over again. So it was this frustration. Every single day we're offering sacrifices. Every single day we're doing this. And on the Day of Atonement, every single year, we've got to go through this whole ritual just so the sins of the people could be covered. That was the priesthood of Aaron. But now let's contrast that by the superior priesthood of Jesus, who was after the order of Melchizedek, which means he was both a king and a priest. Well, first of all, we're told here that he's a priest forever. His priesthood wasn't marked by frailty. He's a forever priest. He's still our high priest. And one of the things that the priest would do is a priest would stand as a mediator between God and man. The priest would represent God or man, the people before God. The Bible says this about Jesus, that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. How, How amazing is that? That means that Jesus is constantly bringing us before the Father. He's constantly interceding on your behalf. Now, one of the things that made a a priest effective was the fact that he could relate to the people he was ministering for and ministering to because he was one of them. He knew their struggles. Well, this is what the Bible says about our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin, Therefore, let us come, therefore, boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive receive, obtain mercy and find grace in our help of need. Notice that. He says, we have a high priest, Jesus, who became a man. He left heaven, came to the service, became a man, and he knows what it's like to live in our shoes. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like To be betrayed. He knows what it's like to experience heartache and heartbreak. He has been, he knows what it's like to face temptation. He was tempted in every single way as we are, but he didn't sin. That's the only difference. And note this, because the writer of Hebrews says, that's our high priest. That means that you and I, we can come boldly into the throne of grace. The thing that the high priest in Israel could only do on one day out of the year, you and I, we can do it every single day. That we can come into his presence that when Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil in the temple that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies was ripped in two from top to bottom. It was God's way of saying now because Jesus, he's your high priest, it's open house. You can come. Anytime. And receive the grace and mercy to help in your time of need. The priest also represents God to the people. Jesus said this, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? Just study me. Get close to me. You want to know the Father? Hey, it starts with knowing me. Jesus, as our high priest, connects us to the Father. And another thing about his superiority as high priest is he offered a superior sacrifice. You see, as I said, the high priest, he had to offer that one sacrifice on the day of atonement every single year. They offered sacrifices every single day. Jesus has come and he offered himself. When he walked into the Jordan River, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus offered himself, get this, once for all. His sacrifice was wide in its effect that it was enough to cover the sins of every single human being that had ever lived, past, present, and future. It was enough to make it where anybody who would put their faith in Him, no matter what they had done, could have their sins being forgiven, their guilt removed, that they could be saved and they could come into relationship with God. It was once for all, all of humanity, but it was also once and for all in the sense that he never had to get sacrificed again. We, do, we don't crucify Jesus again. When we partake of communion today, we're not crucifying Jesus again. What we're doing is remembering and celebrating his victory and what he did. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Once for all and once and for all. Jesus, in his atonement, brought at atonement. He made a way for you and I to be made at one with God. But here's the third thing. Here's the third thing I want you to catch. Is he's a priestly king. You see, that's what he has done for us as our priest. He represents, he mediates, he offered a sacrifice. But as our king, don't miss this church. As our king, he supplies us with all the resources of his kingdom. So that everything that we need in order to follow God and serve God, it comes from Jesus, our high priestly king. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Notice that, present tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As our king, he supplies us with blessing and power and everything that you need to be the husband he's called you to be, to be the wife he's called you to be, to be the son or daughter that he's called you to be, to be the Christian that he's called you to be, to serve him, to be a witness in this world. Everything that we need in order to do what God has called us to do comes to us through our king, King Jesus. His resources are available to us to live the Christian life. He's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to live the Christian life. I'll close with this. On June 12, 1979, a young man made aviation history when he flew a pedal-powered plane across the English Channel. Taking off from England, he flew for three hours, rarely more than 15 feet above the water. Finally, after covering the 22 miles, he landed exhausted on the coast of France. Now, as dramatic as this was, man-powered flight could never ever be practical because man simply cannot maintain the necessary Energy or output for extended flights imagine you're taking a flight from San Diego to London you go down to the airport you hop on the plane and underneath your seat are all these pedals bicycle pedals and everybody gets the pedal come on let's go you know the the pilots cheering us on you know and we somehow get off the ground how far are we going to make it you know Before we crash land in the middle of the ocean, right? Well, you know what? A lot of us have that tendency in the Christian life to think that the way that we make it is by our pedal power. It's by my energy. It's by my trying harder. But God would say, hey, it's not by might, nor by your power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And our King Jesus gives us what we need to be and do what God has called us to do. When we realize and we understand that it's not us trying harder, but it's really in surrender. So today, as we move now to partake of communion, I want you to remember the work of our high priest. The sacrifice that Jesus gave, how his body was broken and his blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. I want you to remember that that his sacrifice was the final sacrifice. You don't need to offer a sacrifice today. If you've sinned, the Bible says you don't need to get saved again. What you need to do is you need to confess your sin. Turn from it and confess it. And the Bible says that we confess our sin, that he, our king, our high priest, is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he fills us with what we need to follow after him. So let's celebrate that today as we partake of communion. But I also want you to acknowledge today that he is our king. And if you're here today and you only know Jesus as the baby in the manger or you only know Jesus as the Savior on the cross, you can say, well, he's my Savior. I, I know I'm saved, but he's not my king. I want to encourage you today to make Jesus your king, to tell him, Lord, I want, I, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I want to I follow you. I want to be a part of your plan, not, not you, you know, trying to work you into my plan. I want to be, Lord, a part of your plan, part of your kingdom. You tell him that. Jesus is our king who deserves all of our worship, and he's the king who wants to reign in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. And Lord, we know it's because you first loved us. Jesus, our hearts are filled today with a sense of gratitude that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who offered the final sacrifice. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we rejoice today as well that we have a king. And Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for those so many times that we have tried to be who you want us to be in our strength, our pedal power. Lord, today we want to just yield ourselves to you. We want you, God, to empower us. We want to stand, Lord, today in the confidence that whatever this life is going to throw at us this week, we have a supply in you, our King, that helps us stand. It helps us make it through. We love you, Lord.